I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Reflecting on Super League to Alpha Magazine in 2009, Ken Arthurson lamented the unnecessary damage the saga caused to the game. I wish Kerry had just let News Limited have the pay TV rights, because if he had done that, the war would never have happened. In fact... There was more than one opportunity for pay TV rights to win the war before it started in the years leading up to April 1, 1995. This is It's All About Pay TV, Mate, the 13th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Fantastic, mate. How are you? Uh, I'm good. We're back. Uh, thanks for all of your patience in our absence. Uh, we've been working hard at it. and The royal we. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so we're stoked to be back and we've got a lot of great stuff over the next few weeks. So let's get straight into it. Before we start this chapter, I wanted to give an erratum and this actually goes back to one of our earlier episodes. So when we did our lead up to Super League in the chapter that we called Making the Big Game Bigger, we talked about the New South Wales Rugby League's rebirth, if you will, in the wake of the Kevin Humphreys scandal. In doing so, we minimised the work of someone who was absolutely pivotal to the changes that were made by the league, and that was the New South Wales Rugby League chairman, Tom Bellow, who was Kevin Humphreys' direct successor in that role. We were recently contacted by someone who was close to Tom Bellew uh, and he gave us some justified criticism in the way we covered this period of time. We stood accused of being poorly researched, which if you know, if you've listened to this show and you know the work that has gone into putting this together, you know what a dagger to the heart that is to me personally. But in this case, we kind of have to wear it. You know, there's no point doing all that research if you leave it on the page. Uh, And my argument as to why we didn't talk about Bellew's role so much was that we weren't telling an overall story of the history of the game. We were talking about it in relationship to Super League and therefore Ken Arthurson and John Quayle were always going to take precedence uh, because their story in the early days of the league from 1983 on is what leads us to their role in Super League. But when I listened back, we did very much talk about it as the Arco era and downgraded the contribution of someone who was more than anyone else involved in the day-to-day running of the game and making those changes. In our defence, the flippancy of that type of discussion is what this podcast is all about. It's based on flippancy. It's, it's supposed to be two guys in the pub talking about the football. Exactly. And we were also criticised for misrepresenting his character and his work outside of the game. Uh, and I would argue along those same lines that there is always going to be an irreverence in the way we present our history. That won't change. But the difference is when you talk irreverently about someone like Ken Arthurson, we've provided enough context that listeners can make up their own minds or can be aware that we're being flippant or irreverent. But when we, when all we give you is the irreverence, then you're missing the whole picture. So I think we were at fault in not 
duly acknowledging the work of Tom Bellow, whose contribution to rugby league predates the incorporation in 1983 and goes well beyond his retirement from the role as New South Wales Rugby League chairman. And in fact, in our later episodes, we're going to be hearing a lot more about him with his role uh, as boss of the Gold Coast franchise in the mid to late 90s. So uh, we will be talking about him more, but certainly a towering figure in Australian rugby league history. So an unreserved RLD apology. Uh, Very much so. So let's get into this week's episode. It's all about pay TV, mate. Just to set this up, uh, and I don't want to give myself any excuses if we do fall short, but this is by far the hardest thing I've had to research over the course of this series. And the funniest thing about it is we've been joking since day dot about how everyone just says, oh, it's about pay TV. The more we get into it, the more it is. Well, it, it, <laughs> and that's the thing. That joke was never about people are wrong to think that it was all about pay TV. <laughs> But it was just the simplicity of that statement. Just, it's all about pay TV. That's all you need to say about it. So what I wanted to do the was... The Cold War, it's all about ideologies. <laughs> so I wanted to get a bit deeper into those ideologies uh, and look at what exactly is meant by that phrase, it's all about pay TV. How does pay TV relate to Super League? Uh, and so the overarching theme of this chapter, I think, is sausage making. <laughs> You're going to see a lot of how the sausage is made in this chapter and not much of it is very pleasant. So this doesn't feature very much rugby league at all. As someone who is primarily interested in researching rugby league history, this took me down several rabbit holes of cross-media ownership laws, cabling (laughs) technologies, political intrigue and so much that I'm going to do my best to be able to elaborate on. So I think I've, you know, given myself enough disclaimers that we're just going to do our best to get into this. So like everything, this story doesn't start on April Fool's Day 1995. And you can go back several years and in fact, a couple of decades, if you really wanted to dig deep into the history of pay TV in Australia and how that relates to rugby league. So from the late 70s, there was talk that Australia would be getting into pay TV and these developments continued through the decade. So when PayTV finally launched in Australia in 1995, we were the last Western country to have PayTV. So Australian TV in that respect was quite a primitive landscape. It's funny how they continued that with the internet, making us yeah. the, the most backward <laughs> Western nation. And so to in, I'm not going to go back to the, the 70s, but we are going to start in the early 90s. And this section of this chapter not only sets up the episode, but is pivotal because... Super League in 1995 was made possible in many ways because of these events in the early 90s. And there's so many times in history in in that next four years that the story could have broken differently and made Super League a very different proposition if and when it did occur. These events all had absolutely nothing to do with Rugby League. And the first of those was the near total collapse of Channel 10 in 1990. I wanted to bring this up reading the notes. I mean, there's three networks... The entire country watching television in the early 90s. How are they going broke? Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll read, to set that up, I'll read a comment from the Sydney Morning Herald on the 22nd of May 1990. This was written by Deborah Light. The grim state of Australian commercial television was starkly revealed yesterday when the once healthy industry recorded its first loss since it began in 1956. The Australian Broadcasting Tribunal announced late yesterday that Australia's 50 commercial television stations lost a total of $3.2 million in 1988-1989, plunging from a $141.2 million profit the previous year. Such results could well turn Lord Thompson of Fleet in his grave, 
the media magnet once described the television business as a license to print money. Who was running these stations? Rugby League people? Well, one person who was running these stations was Alan Bond, who had bought the Channel 9 network off Kerry Packer in 1987. And we're going to discuss the fallout from that sale a little bit later. But basically, each of the three commercial networks was rapidly spiralling downwards, and it was unclear which, if any, would remain within a couple of years. (laughs) It's insane. And in the midst of this, the league had signed a three-year, $48 million contract with Channel 10 to broadcast rugby league in Australia. With 10's financial troubles, this deal basically fell apart and the league was forced to look at other options. At the time, it was the richest sports deal you know, signed on Australian TV, but now it was, it was all falling apart. Mm. And there are a, a couple of what-ifs that could have happened that would have made a very different landscape for rugby league in Australian sport in the future. One of those was Jerry Harvey and John Singleton backed bid to buy Channel 10 and allow the league to buy a 10 or 20% stake, effectively making them their own broadcast partners. I mean, thank God that didn't happen. (laughs) Thank God. And it's funny, at that same time, John Quayle, who had seen the future in terms of pay TV, had explored the possibility of major Australian sports going in to essentially buy a sports network uh, and, again, be their own pay TV broadcast partners. Having their own sports network isn't that bad an idea, ESPN, etc., but having rugby league people manage it, (laughs) diabolical idea. I I think we dodged a major bullet (laughs) with that one. They're in the boardroom going, so so where's the pokey money? (laughs) So with nothing coming of that arrangement, it was left to Channel 9 to come in and pick up the pieces. So in 1990, the ARL signed a new deal with Channel 9. Uh, This was a three-year deal for $20 million, so less money than what they'd got from Channel 10. Nine then went back and sold the rights back to Channel 10 for a cheaper price, also sold the tests to Channel 7, kept State of Origin for themselves. So in 1991, you had the ABC Saturday game as well. So all four major networks were showing rugby league. So a very strange landscape. And that, mm. that's why you think back, you know, on this period and you go, oh, Rex Moss was calling the game. But wait, Daryl Lee Lake was on nine. And, you know, that's why you have all these kind of scattered memories because there are all these different broadcast teams. Well, yeah, it's kind game. of like before my time almost. Like I just sort of think of Ray Warren and Friday Night Football as the, the BC and mm. AD of football. So this deal with Channel 9 and the league's subsequent reliance on Nine and Kerry Packer led to criticism, especially during the Super League period, that they were lackeys of Kerry Packer and they favoured him and and didn't give other networks a chance or really try to strike out on their own in terms of media deals. Uh, The constant defence from Quayle and Arthurson is that at the time that this deal was signed, they didn't have any options because we talked about the state of the three commercial networks. It was basically this or nothing when Channel 9 came along in the early 90s. It still perplexes me how you can have this valuable institution of a game with all the eyes in two states on it and you can't get a buyer for it. (laughs) And this is where the league may have decided to take a gamble. So they signed the initial deal with Channel 9 and this was followed by an extension of this deal in 1993, which was for seven years, essentially $10 million a year for seven years which even in 1993 is paltry. Think about the rise in broadcast deal money. Yeah, and again, the defence mounted by the ARL powers was that, 
we had no option because you know Australian TV was in a dark place financially. Uh, and but surely, if you're Channel Ten, you got a surefire winner with rugby league rights. Well, I mean, they had that, and they were still going through. So. You're right. <laughs> but the the ARL say that they wanted a three year extension with Channel Nine. Kerry Packer wanted a ten year deal, so they compromised with Seven. And it's hard to say. All the ARL should have just played hardball because they needed that money. And if that money wasn't coming in every year, what are they going to do? But you're right that they had a strong hand that. Rugby league was going to be a good thing to have on your TV channel, and if they'd have you know played hard to get or held out for longer or another deal, what's worth noting, particularly for our younger listeners, that the power of media moguls in that time was just insane. Like we just forget about three guys controlled the entire nation. If he said seven years or ten years, exactly. So let's talk about those media moguls. And I mentioned Alan Bond before. So Kerry Packer had sold Channel Nine to Alan Bond in 1987 for a billion dollars basically 800 million of that was paid up front 200 million was to be paid at a certain point in time when that certain point in time came alan bond was in the process of going broke which meant that control of the station would revert back to channel nine and kerry packer this led to kerry packer's famous quote that you only get one alan bond in your lifetime so he basically got Channel 9 back after receiving $800 million to sell it. So made a, you know, a killing on that deal and then got back to you know, his one true love, Channel 9. And then gave away a few tuppence to the ARL. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a recurring theme of this episode. We're at the whims of these rich pricks who treat sales acquisition as a sport. So 9 was only in a position to buy rugby league because Kerry Packer won it back from Alan Bond. So one rich guy's incompetence leads to another rich guy paying next to nothing for TV rights, getting pay TV rights for less than nothing, and then playing his part in completely screwing the game four years later. It still comes out smelling like roses. Yeah, exactly. So this saga is only tangentially related to rugby league, but is another example of how one moment in time that had nothing to do with rugby league completely changed the game a few years after this. It's just another example of piranhas and goldfish. Yeah, like exactly. And we'll stay on the theme of piranhas because the way I explained that story breaking was the simplistic version of it. Alan Bond went broke and couldn't pay the 200 mil, but there was actually so much intrigue that went into that process that it's a complete misreading to actually phrase it that way and leave it at that. So basically... At the time that Alan Bond was trying to raise this capital, he was going to a number of financial backers to to get the money together. These were coming from US TV stations and other media businesses. I think NBC were involved and other you know big powers. And he was at a point where he just about had the money together. But at the same time that was happening, coincidentally, of course, the Labor Party started looking at foreign ownership and whether there (laughs) needed to be a change to those laws. So at the time, foreign ownership could be up to 50%. There was pressure exerted to get that down to 20%. And it was actually Kim Beasley, who was the communications minister at the time, who was involved in changing these laws. Uh, Beasley, of course, denied that influence from Kerry Packer had anything to do with the decision. Just the sheer magnitude of the power Murdoch and Packer had of the yeah, politicians exactly. in that era. Yeah, And I should add that this isn't just a Labor Party thing. It was actually under the Liberals in 1981 that the Murdoch Amendment 
was brought in. Obviously, that's a colloquial name for it. It wasn't tabled <laughs> that way in Parliament. But it basically allowed Rupert Murdoch to keep his television interests in Australia despite living overseas. They changed the laws to make that possible. Uh, he eventually had to sell out when he renounced his Australian citizenship in 1986. But that was the political state of affairs. This is something that has been going on since the beginning, like regardless of who's in power. Uh, required reading for this episode, Frank Hardy's Power Without Glory, one of the true Australian classics in literature that um, will we'll tell you all about it. Well, you want to do a Fatty Vorton then, one of the great books. <laughs> and this, at the time that all this stuff was happening with Bond and Packet, led to headlines like, you are tuned to the old mates network. It was <laughs> we, we talked about Graham Richardson and the, the ministry for mates. Uh, and and this, was, this was the way it was talked about. So I love that another article in this spirit was debating whether or not Kerry Packer has been reinstated as a media mate. Like that's like a formal position. It's, it's almost like a bolter in origin being like, <laughs> like mandatory. I don't know uh, how they define mate. I don't think uh, Kerry and Rupert would help you move <laughs> on the weekend. Uh, and it should also be noted that it's a bit uh, cynical to say that, you know, the, the politicians were just in the pockets of Murdoch and Packer and did their bidding at all times. So over the years... Kerry Packers tried to get many things passed. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. But there's always these forces in play. Yeah, but the big one, like only a television network, he yeah. gets that one okay. <laughs> exactly. So those changes to media ownership went through. Bond couldn't secure the funding from international. Funny, he secured $87 million for Van Gogh irises. <laughs> when was that? Like right before he went bust. <laughs> so Kerry Packer was back at Channel 9. This alone was to change the landscape. His coming back also prevented something that would have equally changed the landscape, which was a potential merger between Channel 7 and Channel 10, uh, which at the time was seen as a potential solution to their financial problems. What would that have meant? Two channels? Yeah, exactly. Great. Um, But I mean, really, you probably could have combined two (laughs) channels and got like one good channel's worth of programming out of it. Who's going to air the Hogan family? (laughs) Lost uh, Jason Bateman classic, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to air Step by Step with Patrick (laughs) Duffy? So Packer actually worked to to veto that merger because it was deemed in his interests to have two financially struggling competitors instead of one potentially strong competitor. And Packer came in and immediately set about changing the way that Channel 9 was run. So in the Bond era, it was the days of long lunches. Uh, you know, there were free alcoholic drinks in the fridges at all times. <laughs> what were they thinking? One uh, Sydney Morning Herald article in 1990 written by Kate McClymont, who I didn't realise had, had been in the game for so long. But... Must have been a cadet yeah. back then. <laughs> um, while Mr Bond was in control, staff were treated to fridges of free beer and, and wine. And as one Channel 9 person lamented, it wasn't any cheap cast stuff. We're talking about a reasonable drop. (laughs) That sounds like a rugby league comment. (laughs) And so Packer came in and immediately tried to find ways of reducing overheads, cutting staff, all the rest of it. And the word was that he was going to run Channel 9 as a business. There wouldn't be any, you know, favoritism or... Well, then according to Gerald Stone's Compulsive Viewing, that great book... Three years later, they were flying private jets to the Central Coast for all the news and current affairs. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the running it as just a business, but still calling up the switchboard to get <laughs> Doug Mulroney taken off air. 
you know, treating a current affair as his own personal message board anytime he had something he wanted to get out there. I've got to agree with taking Doug Murray off the air there. <laughs> so as I said, in 1993, the league signed an extension with Channel 9 for a further seven years. Packer, you know, turned the screws in to try to get the best deal he could. And this 1993 deal included that pay TV writer, which we've talked about in previous chapters as being so unnecessary. But in fact, John Quayle says that the pay TV thing had been included in TV deals since 1986. So there was a sense that it was going to come at some point. My question is, When you're putting a writer into a contract for something that is at that point imaginary, doesn't the contract have to give you enough leeway to be able to give you actual value for money when it becomes a reality? Uh, It depends. You know, when you sign up a deal for, say, selling a television format, which is what I'm into, you can contract for future digital earnings and rights, Mm. which is all speculative. Yeah. But I mean, if if you sign a contract with me for a, a TV thing that includes some hologram technology, that the only issue is the definition of hologram. So yeah. like someone could say, "Well, this isn't technically a hologram. This is a, a bollogram, and yeah. uh, doesn't count in that deal." But... Mm. So I, I guess pay TV was something that did exist as a concept. Yeah, if it didn't in Australia. But regardless, in the early nineties, ESPN actually made an offer for the pay TV rights which would have given the game presumably some international exposure. This was an Australian-based ESPN offshoot, so it was primarily for Australian broadcasting, but it it was still putting you in partnership with the worldwide leader. Thank God we followed up on that. (laughs) 25 years later and we haven't got any uh, American exposure. And so as part of this contract, Channel 9 were given a right of reply. And so basically... The league took that ESPN offer to Packer and said, we've got this deal, what do you reckon? And, you know, Channel 9 stuck with the rights. And John Quayle at the chief executives meeting in 1993 had this to say, we are not with ESPN because under our TV contracts, Channel 9 have matched those rights. With Channel 9 and the News Limited Group, we're with the two biggest media outlets, not only in Australia but internationally. We have a handshake deal with Rupert Murdoch that will take the game through the Star (laughs) Television Network internationally. Again with the handshake deals. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch must just like lick his reptilian lips every time someone puts a handshake deal with him. <laughs> um, I feel we're being a bit unfair to th- throughout the course of this series, but particularly in the context of this chapter, at like criticizing or mocking people for not being able to see with hindsight. Yeah. You know, we're, we're two dickheads sitting down 25 years later with everything that's broken down. That's at what our disposal. makes it funny. <laughs> but so along that, that line, John Quayle, uh, in the 1995, in David Middleton's Rugby League annual, so he would have been interviewed in late 1994, early 1995. So in the midst of everything that was happening. Also, it's a bit uh, rich for us to say, well, like, it'd be easy for us to stand up to Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> Yeah, so take that for what it is. We certainly would probably do worse than than how the ARL did. But so at the time when all this was going on, you know, Super League was breaking. There were rumours everywhere. By this stage, the February meeting may have even happened. I'm not sure. But John Quayle said, pay television in Australia won't be a major player until at least the year 2000. It was already becoming a player. It was already starting to dominate media deals. It was propelling Super League. Um, that's up there with my thought as a teenager that mobile phones wouldn't really take off. 
<laughs> Why would you want to be talking when you're out? Like, I'm thinking. But he wasn't alone in that sentiment in that there was a question in the media as to whether pay TV was necessary at all in Australia. So for all we, you know, may have mock Australian TV and, you know, the quality of it compared to internationally, what we had in Australia was a situation much better than what a lot of countries at the time had. Well, I disagree on that. I, mean, I used to look at American cable TV on, on their movies and, and uh, TV shows where they talk about it, MTV and stuff. And I look at our three channels plus ABC and think this is embarrassing. And then even now today, Australian TV is embarrassing. Yeah, but you're missing the point I was making, which that there were three impetuses, impeti, <laughs> whatever the plural is, for cable television. One was poor programming. Two, poor reception, and three, siphoned sport. You had most of the top shows appearing on Australian free-to-air TV anyway. At that point, you know, HBO wasn't really a factor in terms of original programming. Yeah, but there was the variety I'm talking about, not just the top shows. I mean, um, China Beach and 30-something were big hits, but I mean, don't want to watch them 12 weeks after they were released either. Yeah, you were getting those syndicated sitcoms, all the rest of it through cable TV. But all the, the new programming was appearing on Australian free-to-air TV anyway. You didn't have the regional reception issues that forced um, cable to be widespread in the US. There were anti-siphoning laws in Australia to ensure that if you wanted to watch cricket, if you wanted to watch rugby league, you could get that through free-to-air TV. So there wasn't the drive for pay TV as occurred in some other countries. Mm. leading to Bruce Gindrell to say of pay TV that it would be unutterable crap. <laughs> Sorry, how about we see some more Don Lane reruns? <laughs> but even in the midst of this, it was clear that the league hadn't adequately reckoned with their product and the opportunities that pay TV provides. In 1994, when talking about it, John Quayle said that although they be interested in in selling games to you know cable channels we will be careful not to overexpose matches <laughs> what by offering more than a one hour replay of, of a sunday game <laughs> that was certainly successful in that. <laughs> you needed the bloody um search party to find it so in this context as cable began to become more prevalent in australian political and media talks in the early 90s, it was seen as pretty obvious that Rupert Murdoch would be getting involved. This was a way he built his media empire around the world, uh, famously getting the rights to Premier League soccer in England, uh, buying the Star TV network in Asia. About the only exception to that was in the US, where Fox, a free-to-air channel, wasn't cable. But the way he went about making that one of the big four stations also demonstrates his game plan, which was to secure the rights to NFL. And suddenly Fox, which was seen as kind of a joke or a minor player, suddenly became something that had to be reckoned with and gave it true big four status. And got lucky with the Simpsons too. Yeah. But that's what makes people hate him so much, I think, is that you just know he considers us like simpletons. He goes, just feed them this stupid game that they all watch and they'll come and we'll sell advertising to them. Like, just sees everybody as marks. Yeah. <laughs> But the way he'd done business overseas led to this perception that Super League was part of this grand plan, that it was always how he was going to you know, get his control over Australia. But you're right that Australia was a relatively minor player and I think he, you know, as a 
former Australian and someone with still very strong business interests in Australia, he wanted to be involved. But I don't think it would have been at the cost of a billion dollars or <laughs> whatever it ended up being. You know, it, we saw that he had no direct involvement in Super League until basically when the story broke on April Fool's Day. So all the stuff with John Rebo and Paul Morgan, all the development of a Super League concept was done through Ken Cowley and it was basically serendipitous that it all came together as it did. But so as I said, it was clear that Murdoch was going to be involved in pay TV somehow. But at this point in, say, 1993, it was unclear what that would actually look like and what it could have looked like would have ended Super League before it started. There was a consortium involving... Kerry Packer, Rupert Murdoch, and Telecom, uh, who younger listeners will now know as Telstra. So uh, we'll call it PMT from here on, as it was known in the media. But Legend has it, there's still people waiting for their phones to be put on by Telecom. <laughs> so the Packer Murdoch Telecom Consortium got together with the idea of basically running the game in terms of pay TV in Australia. And so the philosophy behind PMT was safety in numbers, basically pull their resources, work together, and therefore save money and crush any competition that might come along. So it was it was actually smart thinking and, and would have saved everyone a lot of heartache <laughs> a couple of years down the track. This part of the story is probably what I struggled with the most in terms of putting the ins and outs together. There's a lot of license auctions, telecommunications technology, uh, as well as a bunch of business and political intrigue. And I think I've finally made sense of it in my own head, but not to the point of being able to articulate it. So this is very much a surface level exploration of PMT. Just give us a gist of it. <laughs> which, is a, which I will be doing. But if you are interested in learning more, I'd suggest do as I did and go through two years worth of articles in the Australian Financial Review. Rather not. <laughs> and or read this chapter's book recommendation, which is The Gatekeepers by Mark Westfield which goes into the development of Australian pay TV in great detail. And it's uh, actually a really interesting read. But so the main takeaway from PMT in our context is that if this consortium didn't implode, there would have been nothing to fight about. And we would almost certainly have had an ARL-backed Super League by, say, 1996. Oh, my God. Imagine that. This podcast could be about the rise of rugby league to become a world power in sport instead of yeah. what it is. And when this PMT venture was announced, it was considered a fait accompli that this would be the direction Australian pay TV would take. There seemed little chance that there'd be anyone else with enough money to make the necessary investment. You had in telecom one of the two companies in Australia who could handle the technology and make the cable side of it a reality. It was basically spoken about as if it had already been settled. But how that fell apart was basically the process of auctioning off the licenses for pay TV. And again, this is above my head as to there were A and B licenses and foreign people could have this one and not this one and local people could have this one and not this one. But basically it was a closed option and the short story is PMT missed out. There's a lot of intrigue as to the the people who did win it, but that's not our story. So I'm going to Put that aside. Well, how did they miss out of this such a big conglomerate? They basically, it, it was like a tender process and they, right. it was a closed auction. Meaning that the other parties didn't know what the other one was tendering. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so they way uh, underbid, missed out, had a chance. There was a, a secondary uh, licensing auction 
which was uh, for MDS technology. Do you know what MDS is? I don't. I don't either, so we'll move on. But by that point, so this was probably about six and nine months after the first auction. By this point, those philosophical differences between the three members of that consortium, the seams were starting to show and they elected not bidding for those secondary licenses. God. But even at that point, it, it was seen that they'd still get it somehow, that you know the people who won the first license wouldn't be able to get the money together something would happen so even when they didn't bid it was still reported as you know what are pmt gonna do so we can blame the super league war on the winning consortium can we <laughs> oh it's it's no no it's not as simple as that <laughs> it's all about the winning consortium <laughs> but at one point in the midst of all this pmt were threatening to sue the government about the way the auction broke down so there was all this kind of uh intrigue going on politically and at this point, Telecom was still a That's publicly right. owned company. So I've, I've got a, a few questions from this. Like, A, how is a publicly owned company able to uh, bid for a, a government, you know, sold license? How does it then miss out on that license? How does it then threaten to sue its own owner? Well, they're probably like supposed to be independent. Yeah, exactly. Like, as we know, that would never happen. <laughs> and, and, and so... Uh, the striking thing to me is it was just reported in the press as just such a normal state of affairs uh, that it had to be all all sweet. But, but that's just, the thing; it was in those days. It's like we telecoms useless. Yeah, we, we all know. Yeah. Yep. Just accept it. Move on. So, also, what I can't understand in April 1994, Kerry Packer bought a stake in Optus. So, Optus, a direct competitor of Telecom, hence a direct competitor of PMT. You think that's game over right there? The PMT insiders called it a complicating factor. <laughs> but like, I think the media mogul business, right? Kerry and Rupert, Kerry Stokes, all those sort of blokes. I think they uh, act first and then worry about consequences <laughs> later. <laughs> so e- Easy to ask for forgiveness <laughs> than permission. So despite this obvious conflict of interest that should have, and probably internally it did sound the death knell for PMT, I don't think there was internally ever going to be a way to to reconcile this, but publicly it just carried on. Like it just spluttered along for the rest of 1994. And that meeting at Canterbury Leagues Club that we talked about in the Bullfrog episode put forward the Super League proposal. That was a proposal that depending who you speak to was either put together by or for PMT. So even in mid-1994, PMT was still seen as... A significant factor in it all. Crazy, isn't it? Canterbury Leagues, again, as long as they weren't talking to uh, McIntyre, Bullfrog was happy. <laughs> but finally, it did fall apart. And in December 1994, PMT officially disbanded. Even this isn't the point where Super League happened because Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch were now on different sides. So when PMT fell apart, Kerry Packer was invested in Optus. He went out of his way to convince Rupert Murdoch to come along to Optus too. And a deal was all but done with Optus before a last minute back out and Rupert Murdoch linking up with Telecom once again, uh, which gave birth to Foxtel. We seem to have had about 25 chances thus far to avoid the war. And it's not the last one we'll we'll talk about. how unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) And so at this point, this was October 1994, so... PMT still technically existed, but it was all but over. Rupert Murdoch showed his hand and linked up with 
Telstra leading to the birth of Foxtel. This led to further political intrigue when you had some political decisions that had to be made because of the way the two bids, the two technologies were structured. However, the government came down was going to favour either Foxtel or Optus Vision. So making the case for Optus Vision was Graham Richardson, whose relationship with Paul Keating had called. Making the case for Foxtel was a former Keating advisor who now worked for News Limited, Tom Mockridge, who we've mentioned his name before. He actually played a, a significant role in the planning of Super League. So therefore, News Limited had a bit of an edge there. And for various other factors, the decisions the government made favoured the Foxtel bid. When Graham Richardson's too toxic for Keating, it's hilarious. <laughs> but um, what about lobbyists? Aren't they the worst? And it's funny because you hear about them so often in an American context that you'd think that we don't have them here. Mm. But it seems like every step of the way in this decision, there's some lobbyist, there's some former relationship with this guy who's now working for this guy. Mm. It's... um. I feel like radicalized by the, by the research <laughs> I've done for this episode. Like it's, um, I don't know, it's quite disheartening. And so this put the ALP in the unusual position of being on Murdoch's side when they'd been traditionally opposed. And this led to Kerry Packer deciding to take some time on a current affair to all but publicly endorse John Howard. How did he get on there? <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you must know someone. So he went on a current affair talking about how how he thought John Howard was a smart operator and someone who could do some good for the country. Paul Keating saw it and said, I'll get that bastard. And from that point, Paul Keating was seen as an enemy of Kerry Packer. And this had a had league ramifications when on the 1995 grand final, Paul Keating chose to sit in the Bulldogs box uh, instead of the ARL's box, which even though he was the member for Bankstown and had a long relationship with the Bulldogs, it was seen as a direct like <laughs> affront to Kerry Packer that he would choose to do that. And so with all this decided, now you had all the players in place. I haven't mentioned Australis, who were the third... <laughs> the perfume company. <laughs> no, so the third uh, pay TV company and the first to actually get off the ground was Australis. So they were the ones that won the license at that first auction. So I've left out the Australis stuff because it plays a kind of tangential role. You will hear the mentioned in you know the latter part of this chapter. Uh, but So now you had Australis, Optus Vision and Foxtel all competing for content, all competing for subscribers. This is all before pay TV has even launched. And so in the latter half of 1994, they were flying to the US to try to line up broadcast agreements with this channel and this uh, you know, like Paramount and MGM and all these studios trying to secure content. So sport was just a, a small part of this. And uh, I'll, I'll read a, a quote from my common Super League book just to give you an overarching sense of the way it was working. Tie up a family sport and you had the family. Give the dad his footy and his wife would go for the movies. His kids, the children's shows, and they could all watch the news. The footy got the dish on the roof, the movies, and Mikhail's Navy brought in the bucks, <laughs> which... Uh, <laughs> I think the the first time before or since that the phrase Mikhail's Navy brought in the bucks was ever used. See, I think of that sort of uh, Mikhail's Navy type rerun on Foxtel as like, I mean, what are we paying for here? You know, like that's the example of the, the, the bullshit they yeah. put in this film. And just to show you the desperation involved in all these deals and the need to secure content, you had Optus Vision making a deal with Disney to uh, get access to the Disney catalogue. 
that was paying by rate of subscriber. So they paid for a minimum of 600,000 subscribers for 1998, which rose to 850 in 1999, all the way through to 1.2 million subscribers by 2001. 800,000 subscribers that early on. We only had like 16 million people in the country then. Not bad. But all projections were way, way, way below that. So even they knew that they weren't going to reach anywhere near those numbers. I don't even know if they ever got to the the 600,000 subscriber rate that they needed in that first deal. Right. So this shows you the, the desperation and the way money started to just become a secondary concern. It was about getting your cables into the house and, you know, boxing out the opposition. So the, the sport thing and rugby league has to be viewed in that context. It was one aspect of this uh, race for content, basically. And just to show you, again, the way the sausage was made, working for Malcolm Turnbull actually in 1994 flew to the US to try to secure deals for Foxtel, but he did it on spec. Like he had no relationship with Foxtel at all. But <laughs> Was that pre-Aussie mail, Malcolm? Um, yeah, it would have been, right? Surely that wasn't... So he was running. just a wheeler and dealer. Yeah, yeah. Who, who'd who had a long, long-running long association with Kerry Packer. I think he was a lawyer for Packer during World Series cricket. I don't know if they'd fallen out by then. They, I think they had, yeah. yeah. Once the, the pay TV did get up and running, this race for subscribers also led to a price war with people like dropping their rates as low as possible. And this is eventually what crushed Astralis, not being in the position that Foxtel and Optus were of just having a you know bottomless pit to draw from. You know, As they went lower, Astralis had no choice but to go with them, which they weren't able to pay for, basically. And so we, we heard about the idea of TV being a license to print money at the start of this chapter. And even the early days of the pay TV thing, it was talked about in this respect. So in 1993, you had an Australian Financial Review article saying, so far, most of what has been written about pay television has been based on the assumption that a pay TV broadcasting permit will be a license to print money. An Australian Financial Review article in 1999, uh, which was a glowing piece on Ozstar, who were the, the regional pay TV provider, wrote this. Five years on, Ozstar is about to become the first Australian pay TV operator to actually make money. <laughs> it's probably league-esque. <laughs> and so let's talk about it in the league context now. So... Everything that happened during April 1 on both sides directly came out of this fight for content. So when News Limited launched the April 1 raid and the league together with Optus and Packer got together to decide on what, if anything, they would do about it, the head of Optus Vision Sport, Tom Barnett, was asked by Jeff Cousins about the importance of rugby league to Optus Vision. Jeff Cousins asked him, do you think we're stuffed without rugby league? And Tom said, yes, with great difficulty, could we get this thing up and running without rugby league, which launched the ARL's response and the rest is history. So league was very important, but it was also just a pawn. Mm. And I think the, the most fitting thing in this whole saga in a rugby league sense is just before walking in into this room today, Andrew, I sat in my car and watched the halftime entertainment of the 1995 grand final, <laughs> which of course is the, the debacle of the Optus Vision TV flying into the air and, and part of it falling on the ground. <laughs> Why did I think that was 97? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the whole lot thought it was 97. <laughs> but the striking thing to me watching that back is that even without the TV falling over, the whole proceeding was an absolute debacle. <laughs> 
So for I'm just, I'm just going to break it down for, for maybe anyone who hasn't watched it, but but I would urge everyone to to go to YouTube and do so. We'll, we'll, we'll put it on we'll, our we'll, socials. We'll put it up. Yeah. So watch the full five minute rundown where you had a elaborately dressed dancers run out holding a long thing that I thought was a hose at first. Then I realised it was a cable. They went and plugged that cable into the TV. At which point, costumed dancers dressed as Marilyn Monroe, Groucho Marx, because you've got to have the Marx Brothers for <laughs> you know nineteen nineties pay TV watchers, uh, burst out of the TV <laughs> a- along with some of the current sports stars: Melinda Gainsford, Costa Zoo, Damien Keogh, uh, Nicole Stevenson. So the big guns for nineteen ninety five. Uh, and <laughs> Melinda Gainsford was on everything. She was on uh, Wild World of Sports all the time. Anyway. I liked that. Bit. So that that you know, they all came out, danced on the field, uh, and then finally the the finale was the TV raising up into the sky. At which point it all went wrong. But just the hubris of the Australian Rugby League to turn over their grand final halftime entertainment for a five minute choreographed advertisement for Optus Vision. Yeah, I mean, and Karma came back. To yeah. Bite yeah. Them. <laughs> so I have no sympathy for them in that respect. And, and this is an organisation with a proud history of shipbuilding exercises. <laughs> A lot of maritime themed. <laughs> what, were the ship shapes unavailable? <laughs> ship shapes would have been far better <laughs> with their ticker and um, commitment to the game. So for me, there's nothing more apt than watching this five-minute advertisement and just go, this is what it was all for. This, this is what we almost lost our game for. But this is what makes me sick, that poxy pay TV startup. Who cares about Optus Vision? It was shit. And it wasn't just Optus Vision. And that leads me to the conclusion of this episode, which is the launch of Australian pay TV on Australia Day 1995. As I said, it was Australis who got in first uh, and it was their sports channel, Galaxy, who were going to show the brave new world of TV in Australia. And this was the day I started harassing my mum and dad. So they got Ron Casey to come (laughs) in. Again, Ron Casey. To come in and introduce the coverage and aping the original broadcast of TV in Australia in 1956, Ron Casey said, welcome to the future, as he introduced sedan car racing from the US. <laughs> but let me just stop it there. Can you imagine a more unpleasant celebrity? Like, <laughs> like nothing against the guy, but his face wasn't pleasant. He's his a, voice. Yeah, he was his... like confrontational. Like, if this is the cream of the crop to advertise your product. Yeah, like... Zero gravitas, like whatever you, you think of him as a broadcaster, like he wasn't the type of guy who carried himself in this dignified... <laughs> yeah, it was like um obnoxious sort of vibe. And I've got to say, when I read that, I got so irrationally angry. Like I think I texted you the, the second <laughs> I read that sentence. Like we almost lost our entire game <laughs> for fucking Ron Casey and US sedan car racing. <laughs> We can't put it all on Ron Casey, but I remember getting that text and thinking, he's, he's too deep into this. Like, <laughs> we need to stage an intervention. So this chapter has really left me like... It broke you. Yeah. It's it's just so sad. And I'm glad we're still here. Yeah. I mean, the game, the game will never die if you can survive this. So I really hope we've somehow made sense of this. As I said, it's not my area of expertise. Clear as mud, mate. So uh, anyone who does have better insight someone who could articulate some of these things uh please uh email us the rugby league digest at gmail.com let us know what you think on facebook and twitter 
Uh, this week's book recommendation, as I said, Mark Westfield's The Gatekeepers, really illustrative account of everything that happened. And just to put rugby league in its proper context in all of this, I got this book thinking it was going to be 300 pages of the Super League War. The Super League War covered about 10 pages of one chapter. That was it. So with that, we'll get out of here for this week. So thanks for listening. Uh, and um, as I said, we'd love to hear what you think. Well, on behalf of the listeners, as a fan of the show myself, I'd like to listen to your research. Thank you for doing that because that sounds like a heartbreaker. Oh, well, thanks, mate. So we'll be back next week with something equally heartbreaking, but at least back in our wheelhouse of rugby <laughs> league. So uh, look out for that one. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.